5. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Now, as I said in the introduction, this is the first of the group of eight psalms that speak about the Lord reigning as a king, or uh, what uh, some commentators speak of as the theocracy of the Lord. Now, theocracy is a term that was coined by the uh, Jewish historian Josephus, who lived about the time that Jesus did, and he actually coined that phrase, that term, uh, theocracy, and it just simply means rule of God. Monarchy is, of course, the rule of a king. Uh, oligarchy is the rule of a few or the elite. Theocracy is the reign of God. And that's our theme tonight as we took, uh, take this uh, passage uh, in three parts. First of all, I want to speak to you about the, the reign of the Lord. The Lord reigns from verse 1. And then secondly, that the Lord reigns in majesty. That's also coming to us from the opening verse. And then also that the Lord reigns in eternal holiness. So the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns in majesty. And then thirdly, that the Lord reigns in eternal holiness. Now let's talk a little bit about simply the the idea of God reigning. That the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the the God who reigns. He is the God who rules and controls all things. This is really one of the very principal doctrines of the Bible. From the very beginning of Genesis to Revelation chapter 22, we see this theme that God is creator and ruler over everything. And as we saw this morning, uh, God is in control of every random molecule. There is no such thing as a random electron floating out there in the universe that's outside of the control of God. Uh, if there was, hypothetically speaking, we could not have any real guarantee that the Lord really is reigning and in control because all it would take is that one little electron to somehow overthrow the universe that God is controlling. So everything is under the control of God, boys and girls, every aspect of our life, things seen and things unseen. And the Bible makes this clear that God is absolutely sovereign and that he alone is the king. Uh, the Bible also makes it clear that not only has God created all things, but he governs everything that he has created. Uh, nothing comes to pass in history, in time, in space. That has not been ordained of God. God has decreed all things by his own eternal power. And whatever God has decreed, that is that which comes to pass. You remember when Job was having issues with God, hard things came into Job's life and Job began to question maybe a little too vociferously about God and his reign and so the Lord shows up and has a little time out with Job and says, Job, let me show you and remind you of a few things. And he begins to ask Job a series of questions. Where were you 
when the foundations of the earth were laid. Uh, do you command the clouds to open up and pour forth uh, of their blessings? Uh, do you, are you with the deer when she kneels down to give birth to her calf? And, and on and on the, the questions went. Question after question after question after question until the Lord overwhelms Job with his ignorance. And Job cries out, uh, you know, that he should have put his hand over his mouth. He spoke rashly and spoke unwisely that simply because he was suffering greatly uh, was no reason to try and bring God before Job's tribunal and to accuse God. He recognized God is sovereign and he is good in that sovereignty. He is absolutely wise in that sovereignty and he does all things well. The Lord controls everything, good things that happen and bad things. Now, this is important to hear because a lot of times when bad things happen, uh, especially when they're really bad things, that's when they bring out the theologians on TV and they interview them. And that's where you hear really bad theology. Uh, One of the times you hear really bad theology and you'll hear things like, well, God Uh, wasn't involved in this tragedy, but he's now here with us to comfort us. You heard this on 9-11, those of you who can remember 9-11. You hear this, uh, you know, in terrible school shootings and and things like that. The idea that God was not in control or sovereign over these tragedies, but but now, uh, for some reason, he's here with us to to comfort us. But that is precious little comfort uh, to have a God who shows up after the fact, we, we need to realize and we need to lay hold firmly that the Bible teaches that God is in control of bad things that happen. Now, this is not to impute to God the evil that comes to pass. Now, those of you, when you go off to school, to college, you're going to tr- probably have a professor who's going to try and trick you up and, and say, Well, you know, God's either absolutely sovereign or God is good, but he can't be both, they'll say. And, you know, if God's absolutely sovereign, then he can't be good, they say, because all these bad things happen. Well, if God's absolutely good, well, then he's not absolutely sovereign because he would have been able to do something about these bad things. What we say is, no, the Bible teaches God is absolutely sovereign over everything. God is absolutely good. Uh, that what we need to realize and appreciate is that the evil of, over which God is sovereign, remember, God is sovereign over the devil. The devil is not outside of the control of God. Remember in the book of Job, the devil had to go to God for permission to do anything to Job. And God granted that. But, but even there, that we need to remember what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8. God works everything, even the evil in this world, ultimately to the good of God. This is what Joseph had to remind his brothers when his brothers threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. And later, as God in his providence raises Joseph up to be the prime minister of Egypt and he reveals himself to his brothers at the end of the story, you'll recall that Joseph told them not to worry. You intended it for evil, but God has intended it for good. So everything in our lives, including the bad things, the evil things, that occur in our life, God will ultimately work out for our good. And we will see that perfectly, I believe, in the consummation. When Jesus Christ comes again and he establishes the new heavens and the new earth, we will see the wisdom and the glory of God in it all. 
We will be amazed at it. Um, so we need to keep the, the, this in mind, that the Lord reigns. And that, as I said this morning, we need to keep in mind that God is, is reigning and ruling over salvation too. A lot of times, uh, evangelicals, they'll say, I believe in a sovereign God. But when you ask them about the sovereignty, the nature of that sovereignty, you begin to realize that oftentimes there's precious little sovereignty in it, especially when it comes to individual salvation. When you begin to ask them what they mean by God's sovereignty, uh, they often then come to the point where they deny that God is sovereign in his grace. They don't like the idea that God elects a great multitude for salvation and that he passes by others uh, for reprobation and for eternal punishment. And so uh, they, they don't like uh, what we see in Romans chapter 9, where God says that Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Jacob I saved, Esau I condemned to eternal punishment. And we need, to, we need to hold forth the truth that God is absolutely sovereign and reigning even in his grace to us so that nobody has a reason to boast. If you're a Christian here tonight, you and I, we do not have any reason to think ourselves any better than somebody else. Uh, we, we realize we've been saved by grace. In fact, there are people tonight in hell who were better people than you. Think about that. There, there, were, there are people in hell tonight who by nature are better people than you. And yet God, if you are in Christ, chose you, he elected you, he saved you because of his grace. Remember what we see with Jacob and Esau. I mean, Jacob really was no better than his brother. Jacob was a stinker. He steals the birthright. He lies to his dad. Uh, and, and Jacob had no reason to, to inherit eternal life. And yet God was gracious to him. I, I won't say who, but in the past couple months, it's been interesting. Um, I, I had two separate conversations with two different Southern Baptist ministers wrestling with this issue. And uh, one of them, uh, we, we were at Starbucks, and he said, you know, I need to talk to you about Calvinism. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so we talked, and, and he said, I just need to understand, what do you believe? And I, so I did the best I, I could, going from the scriptures and explaining, you know. Really, when, when you fundamentally want to know what, what this is all about, is simply saying, the Lord reigns. God reigns. God is Lord in salvation. And uh, another time, and these guys didn't know, you know, these guys were independently struggling with this. Uh, and, and another guy, we were walking down the sidewalk. And he's wrestling through these things and he's praying through these things. And we've been talking and, and he said to me, he said, you know, uh, he said, I was studying in the prophets the other day. And, and, he, and, he, and he said, you know, I, I realize that God raises up Nebuchadnezzar and he calls him like a bee from a far country to come and sack Israel. And he turned to me and said, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of free will there. And I, I simply said to him, I said, you know, again, I won't say who it was. I said, brother, once you see the sovereignty of God on one page of your Bible, 
you're going to begin to see the sovereignty of God on every page of your Bible. Because from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that is one of the great doctrinal themes, that the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns in everything. That's what our text says. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Uh, the Lord is girded himself with strength. The world is firmly established. You hear that? Firmly established. It will not be moved. Nothing's going to happen in the world that is not of God's doing. What happened to Japan was of the Lord's doing. We have to acknowledge that. Uh, verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The, the floods lift up their pounding waves. And you have the... The idea here of the, the vastness of the creation, the ocean. You think about the, the ocean and, and how mighty it is. You know, remember that phrase, that little saying that John Kennedy kept on his desk, Lord, help me. The ocean is so big and my boat is so small. And yet God is in control of that. He, elsewhere we saw in the Psalms that the Lord controls the wind and the waves. And who is it that we see in the New Testament but Jesus himself? As the disciples are waking Jesus up and saying, Lord, don't you care? We're perishing. No, ye of little faith. Don't you know I'm God in flesh? Don't you know I reign? I was taking a nap. I knew what I was doing. I'm in control even while I'm napping. And yet, nevertheless, he says, hush, peace, be still. And instantly, the wind and the waves completely obey Jesus. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. Listen to what it says. He does whatever He pleases. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. You say, was the plan to crucify Jesus part of God's plan? Well, listen to what Peter says. They quote Psalm 2 and then they add that Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathered against Jesus, quote, to do, now listen, whatever your hand and whatever your purpose predestined to occur. The cross was predestined. You know, when people struggle with the sovereignty of God over tragic events, do you know what the worst event in human history has been ever? It was evil men putting the Son of God to death on a cross. That's the worst, that's the most tragic event that has ever happened in human history. That is the great, the most evil event that ever happened. That's more evil than the Holocaust, more evil than what Mao or Stalin have done. The most evil, wicked event in human history was putting Jesus to death on the cross, and yet, notice what Acts 4, 27, 28 say, that God predestined that evil act to occur so that you and I might be saved. God ordained the persecution and the crucifixion of his own son for our eternal salvation. Uh, you could look at... Um, Romans chapter 9 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul, he quotes Exodus chapter 9, 16, that God raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate his power in you. Now, now what does that mean to demonstrate his power through Pharaoh? 
Well, what the Bible is saying is that God is saying, I am in control of the life and the destiny of Pharaoh. And if I want to harden his heart against the preaching of Moses so that I can later destroy him, I am God and I can do that. Proverbs says that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord and he directs it. God directs it. The Lord directs the heart of the king in any way he chooses. Not the way the king chooses, but the way the Lord chooses. Notice that God controls the hearts of the most powerful people on the planet. He is sovereign over them. That means the U.S. president, means dictators in the world, prime ministers, popes, princes, whatever. God controls all their hearts. And it's simply a a way of saying that if God controls the hearts of the most powerful people in the world, he certainly controls the people who have the least amount of power. God is in control of our hearts. Now, let me say a few things by way of application. Number one, as I've already said, God's sovereignty applies to salvation. Romans 9, Ephesians 1. God is sovereign in our salvation, and therefore we can't boast in our our salvation except to boast in the Lord. Uh, We were not more clever. We were not more intelligent. We we were not better people and more deserving of this salvation. It is simply the amazing grace of God. Number two, God's sovereignty and salvation applies to the entire world. What I mean by that is the Lord reigns in his grace and in his salvation. And the Bible says that that grace is going to be extensive. That grace, that salvation is going to be worldwide in its scope. That every single tribe, tongue, and nation. And many of you have heard me speak on this subject to how I believe that the gospel will go widely into the earth before Jesus returns. Uh, I'll just give you a sample of verses. You can look at Psalm 2, where the father says to the son, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Now, what, is it, what does he say? Ask of me, that is the son, Jesus is to ask the father, ask of me, And what? I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. So part of God's sovereign plan, you have to remember that while God is sovereign in grace, we need to appreciate the fact that the grace of God is large and it is extensive and it's going to be worldwide. Uh, We can look in Psalm 66 and uh, Psalm 67. These also speak of the universal application. By universal, I don't mean each and every solitary person, but every tribe, tongue, and nation. 66 verse 4, All the earth will worship you and sing praises to your name. You can look at Psalm 67, That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the nations. Psalm 86, Thou, O Lord, hast made all the nations, and they shall glorify thee. We looked at Matthew 28 this morning, Revelation 7, 9, John sees a great multitude which is from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. I believe that. I believe, and I take that literally, that every single solitary people group in the world will have people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, that means the most remote, nomadic people in the deepest desert or on the farthest island out in the Pacific Ocean 
will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and a great multitude of them will believe. Revelation 7, 9 says that there, that, that there was a multitude that no man could number. And I, I understand that to mean simply that, that it is a, a vast number. I don't think that, that, that the elect is small. Sometimes I think people react against God's sovereignty in salvation because they think, well, it means only a few people will be saved. Heaven will be small. Hell will be, will be large. And I think the Bible says that really a great multitude is going to be saved. That Jesus has not come into the world in vain. Uh, that he has come to pay for our sins of the whole world. And, and so let me say this. My third way of application. If God is sovereign in salvation, which I contend. And that sovereignty in salvation is worldwide in its application. Then, then I would say thirdly. Then the God also is sovereign in Excuse me. Then God also is sovereign in who he chooses to bring that salvation to others. Now, this bleeds over to what we said this morning. That is, here's my point. God has ordained the end. A great multitude are going to be saved. And so he has also ordained then the means by how a great multitude is saved. And that is through the Great Commission, through you and through me, through the church. We, we are plan A and there is no plan B. The church is God's plan for salvation in the earth. And so God has chosen you, again, if I can get back to this morning's theme, God has chosen you to participate in the Great Commission. Now, and you don't have to wrestle in secret prayer wondering, you know, how, over, over this point. Am I called to help with the Great Commission? Now, you may have to wrestle as to whether you're called to the gospel ministry, but certainly not in terms of God's will for your life with regard, to the God, with regard to the Great Commission. This is God's sovereign will for your life to, to participate in the church and its commission to spread the gospel. So God is reigning in your life. God reigns. The Lord is reigning in your life, which frees you to pursue the calling that God has on your life, whatever that might be in particular. And as you pursue that calling, what you're seeing is the lordship of Christ, the reigning of God working in you and through you to all creation. All right, so that's my, my first point. That's probably the longest one. Let me more quickly move on. The Lord reigns in majesty. In, in our psalm here, verse 1, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with, with majesty. Now, what is majesty, boys and girls? Majesty is, is not easy to define, is it? It's, it's a sense of glory, dignity, stateliness, grandeur. Those might be some of the best adjectives that we could use to describe majesty. You know, um, many of you know, if not all of you know, Elizabeth Taylor died just recently. And uh, so, you know, people were reflecting on her career and her movies. And, uh, you know, one of those scenes of grandeur, probably from one of her better movies, Cleopatra. And if any of you remember that the scene where Elizabeth Taylor is playing Cleopatra and she comes to Rome. And it's, it's one of those great Hollywood epic classic movies. I mean, casts of thousands upon thousands of actors are out there. And they're coming in through the Arch of Triumph in, into Rome. And there's 
thousands and thousands of uh, soldiers and thousands and thousands of slaves uh, parading before uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra. And you see all these slaves coming in and they're pulling in this gigantic sphinx into the city center of Rome. And in front of the Sphinx, there's Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra sitting upon her throne. Uh, way up there, the, the Sphinx can barely fit under the Arch of Triumph. And everybody is uh, eyeing this great scene as she is way up there. And then the slaves lift up uh, Elizabeth Taylor from even uh, where she is perched high up in front of that Sphinx. And they carry her down this long ramp and bring her before you know, Caesar, and of course, you know, here's Cleopatra winning over uh, Rome. She's conquering Rome, in a sense, with all this grandeur. And uh, the, the crowd is eating it up, and they're loving it. And, and uh, the Senate, the Roman Senate, is feeling a bit nervous uh, because they realize the grandeur and majesty of, of this is wooing the people's hearts away uh, from their own glory. So anyway, uh, but you know, the majesty of Caesar or of Hollywood movies, you know, this is, this is a majesty and a glory that uh, is a tiny shadow of the majesty and the glory of God. Uh, you know, I remember when I worked in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, and they would speak of Potomac fever, I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but Potomac fever is what you get, young people. Uh, it's not a literal disease, but it is, it is a, uh, something that you acquire because you are surrounded constantly by power. Uh, you are constantly seeing people that ordinarily you would only see on TV, and you're rubbing shoulders with these people, and it's a bit heady, especially for a teenager. So anyway, it's, it's what's known as Potomac fever. And they would always warn you, watch out, you know, for Potomac fever, the majesty, the grandeur, the glory of it all. I mean, every day it's like Christmas up there. You know, you, you see the great monuments. You've got the Smithsonian, the mall, you know, oh, yeah, driving past the White House. Yeah, I do my grocery shopping at the Watergate, blah, 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 blah. You know, and, and uh, you know, and, and, and Caesar's glory, though, just pales, though, in comparison when you read the Bible and see what the, the majesty and the glory and the grandeur of, of God is like. Uh, the, the idea that the, the monuments are all that great anymore really uh, takes its proper perspective when you read passages that speak about God wrapping himself with light as with a garment. You know, they, our, our presidents and politicians will try to do things to uh, make their grandeur greater. You know, they... Put a little reverb herb in the in the microphone, you know, so Obama sounds like he's speaking from on high, and you know they'll set up uh, the stage to you know make it, uh, you know, what, what they had those Greek columns or something <laughs> back in the Democratic convention, you know, it just looked like something you know from the Parthenon or something. But anyway, you know, they they do all these things to try and. Uh, get us, you know, sell this image of, of a politician. But, you know, think about God wrapping himself with light. 
you know, no politician. They can turn the spotlights a certain way, but nobody's able to actually just clothe himself with, with the light of the brilliance of the, of the sun. Uh, and that's what God does. God decides to hide himself, you know, with, with just the majesty of stars and, 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 and the sun, the power. Uh, the Bible says justice and righteousness are the very foundation of his throne. These are not just ideals or concepts <coughs> that uh, any ordinary Caesar would aspire to, but this is, this is the very uh, nature of who God is. He is justice. He is righteousness. Uh, it, it is his being. He's perfect in these attributes. You have strange creatures called cherubim and seraphim. Uh, they have multiple eyes and multiple wings and they cover themselves and they hover flying with these wings and they sing unceasingly in the presence of God and his great white throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Bible says that there's a crystal sea before him giving us a, center, a sense of the grandeur of God. Uh, the Bible pictures the, the throne room is this great white throne and above the throne is this emerald rainbow that hangs above it and before it is this ocean of crystal. The elders, they prostrate themselves before God, not just bowing, but they lie in front of him. Uh, the martyrs cry out from underneath the altar. John tells us he sees vast multitudes of humanity that no man could number and they're all singing to the praise of, of God. Not only are they singing God's praises, but you listen to what they're singing in Revelation 4 and 5, that all power, all authority, all dominion is given unto God. Everything belongs to God. But often, unfortunately, the church is too easily impressed by the grandeur of this world, uh, the materialism of this world, the Caesars of this world. Uh, we think about... Uh, how many people think it's great if their pastor gets to meet a famous politician? Wow, our church must be influential, you know, because our pastor has meetings with the president or something like that. And, and they need to realize that is a poor substitute uh, for the grandeur that is before the church, really. And I think we'd also, we need to keep this in mind that the Lord reigns in majesty to help us appreciate all the more the humiliation that Jesus underwent. When you think about that by nature, Christ, the eternal Son of God, was there with the Father in all this grandeur and glory and majesty from eternity past. And what did Christ do? He clothed himself with our meekness, our humanity. He, he, he humbled himself coming into this world, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and he hid that majesty among us. I mean, he hid it completely almost for 30 years, living as a carpenter's son in, in Galilee, in Nazareth. And even when he began his public ministry, even there, the, the extent of the glory and the majesty still was often hid from the people. Jesus spoke to them in parables. Uh, Jesus wouldn't say that, he wouldn't often come out and say that he was the son of God. He wouldn't take any of the prerogatives that belonged to him as God. But instead, the Bible says that he became a bondservant. 
and he became obedient to the Father even to the point of death. And you see, that's what, that's what the Bible calls you and me to as we follow Jesus Christ, as we follow the one who is full of grandeur, who is full of majesty. Yet Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross. And this is where we need to be careful as Christians that we don't have an over-realized eschatology. Some people think I've become a Christian and therefore I get to enter immediately into all the grandeur and splendor and glory and majesty of God. And they set aside the fact that Jesus has called them to follow him, not in the majesty and glory and grandeur, yet that will come, but to follow in the way of humiliation, to follow in the way of the cross, that we take up our cross. And even as the Son of God, full of majesty, hid himself by becoming a servant, a bondservant, that we too, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, what do you do? You don't exalt yourself in grandeur and majesty. You what? You humble yourself. You make yourself the least. You make yourself the youngest. You make yourself the servant of all. And so here's this Lord of majesty and glory. And what does he do? He washes the feet of the disciples. And he says, you know, if you really want to be great in the kingdom of God, here's a good example of how you become great in the kingdom. <coughs> you don't do it by self-aggrandizement, but through service. And you see, human nature wants to do the opposite. We, we want to put on majesty. We want to put on grandeur. We want to be able to flash a badge. We want to be able to exercise authority over others. Jesus said that the Gentiles do this with each other. But it's not that way, he said, among you. Whoever wants to be great must become last. Well, that leads to our final point. The Lord reigns in eternal holiness, and this is the shortest of our points tonight. Uh, Look with me at, uh, first of all, uh, verse 2, and then we'll look at verse (laughs) 5. Eternal holiness. Notice the eternity is mentioned in verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting And then verse 5, your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And there again, the emphasis on eternity. So I'm calling it eternal holiness. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns in majesty. And then thirdly, the Lord reigns in eternal holiness. Now, holiness is that attribute of God that separates him uh, from ourselves, one of those attributes. Uh, This Bible says not only is God holy, but he is thrice holy in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. Whenever the Hebrew repeats itself, it's a way of emphasis. And so it is a way of saying God is infinitely holy. He is eternally holy. And the point there, when Isaiah sees the holiness of God, Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The first thing we realize is we are unholy because we are sinners, and therefore we need to believe on Jesus Christ. Christ was holy when he lived here among us, and he is holy. He obeyed the law perfectly at every point. The Old Testament moral law, ceremonial judicial law, he obeyed the Father And so he gives us that holiness when we believe in him. (laughs) As I close tonight, and we think about the Lord reigning, I want you to realize that the Lord reigns 
in majesty, eternal holiness, and he does so through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has all these attributes of God in his own person. He reigns with majesty. He reigns with eternal holiness because, as he said, that before Abraham was, I am. Christ is the great I am. And Christ extends himself to you tonight. If you're not a Christian here tonight, Jesus Christ invites you to believe on him who is holy, who is majestic, and who is eternal, that he might reign in your life. He will reign, if not in this life, he will reign in eternity. Every knee, the Bible says, will bow. Every tongue will confess him as Lord. I would urge you that you do that tonight and that you confess him as your own Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father.